Hello, and welcome to another episode of City on a Hill, a podcast about what it means to be a citizen of heaven and a citizen of the United States. We want to encourage Christians to find their tribe in the church and their hope in the kingdom of God, rather than to seek both in the kingdom of man. So with that, let's get to it today. Well, hello, I'm Eric Step. And I'm Scott Reevely. Welcome back to the City on a Hill podcast. Last week, I was in in the school chair giving my book report. So I think it's only fair, Scott, that you tell us about a book you read. Well, okay. Well, you just want me to jump right into I it. I just, I'm ready. You, have you read any books lately that are at all tangentially related to the topic? Well, it's, it, it's funny you should ask. Because I mentioned last time that I have, I, I put books on um, my Amazon wish list and wait for them to come on sale. The reality is I have two, uh, two Amazon wish lists. One is simply for this podcast, and one is just other books that I hear or see or whatever. But I put them in that one. Are they both public so people can go and I don't say, know. oh, I'm going to buy this book for Scott? I don't think either one are public, and I really try and only get them on Kindle anyway, so <laughs> don't. It would be very nice if you wanted to, but no need to. So, um, But, yeah, there are all kinds of different uh, books that it's funny because you know, I just sort of get them when they come on sale, and I've got ones about, um, about racism. I've got some about... Um, the uh, soul of America, religious beliefs of America's founders, um, all kinds of stuff. So anyway, I ended up um, finding one like that that came on sale called uh, A Scandalous Witness. And it is A Little Political Manifesto for Christians by Lee C. Camp. And I didn't know anything about it. I don't know if I'd seen that referenced in a footnote at some other, um, in some other book or not. But one one way or the other, I ran across it. Uh, Lee uh, Seacamp is a professor at Lipscomb University in Nashville, and uh, he has a he has a podcast uh, called um, Tokens, which has which actually had the, the former mayor of Tennessee on it, and that's where I heard the the interview with the guy who wrote your book. But anyway, um, I don't know that we'd line up with him necessarily on what we've come to call the the political spectrum or the political continuum. We also said there is no political continuum. Well, we said the Christians (laughs) maybe ought to be off that. Right, right. Yeah, and and step off of it rather than try and find the Christian spot on there. So anyway, this this little political manifesto that he uh, offers has what uh, he has termed 15 propositions. So he writes it as a manifesto with 15 propositions, and I didn't really know even how to think about that when I started the book. But the funny thing is he said a lot of things that ended up, you know, we had already been talking about, already been thinking about. And so I think what I'm going to do is just run through these 15 propositions, uh, and some of it, uh, this reason we're not doing more with this is because some of the languages, other language is language that we might not use on this podcast normally. Our, our podcasting ended up being explicit. Uh, yeah, but this one we might have to label. Uh, but if you, uh, yeah, if you're listening with little ones, you may want to, you know, put your buds in or something. But uh, anyway, so you'll, you'll see <laughs> proposition one, you'll see what I mean, right? Proposition one, 
history is not one damn thing after another. Uh, so he's, he's quoting somebody, and I don't remember uh, the, the quote, but essentially what he's saying is that Christianity has a view of history that is central to what we believe about Jesus. That, that history is moving in a direction. It's moving in the direction of consummation where Jesus is king, and we can't forget about that, mm. which is very similar to Proposition 2, which is the end of history has already begun. So Jesus has inaugurated that kingdom when he came and lived on this earth, died, and rose again. And so what we uh, must insist on is that there is uh, an inaugurated um, inaugurated kingdom that we are now part of. And so we don't want merely to reduce Christianity to, as he says it, uh, an afterlife religion, Mm. to reduce it to some spiritual escape from real life and history. He said this was to pervert Christianity and fundamentally misconstrue it. So his, uh, you know, his thought is that because there is a kingdom uh, of which Christians are a part now, um, that that is our political identity. Mm. And so the, the prospect that uh, we're going to get on the continuum that we just talked about is a, a, a way that we um, miss, uh, really, or misapply our Christianity. So anyway, I, I um, let me see. I think that this would be... Um, of interest, he, he, he just says, like, why have we found ourselves in this mess? One plausible interpretation runs this way. We bought into the Western notion that religion is a private affair, unrelated to politics and history and sociology. But knowing that history and politics and social structures still matter a great deal, we cast about to find some bearer of historical meaning, not uh, finding it then, as we already assumed in Christianity, we yield this role to the nation state as a primary player in the unfolding of history. Finally, convinced of the importance of being politically and socially relevant, we had to get on the side of the right that is correct political partisan agenda, nation state, or power-mongering entity. In other words, the, this, this vision of history, as he talks about it, is the thing that anchors Christians uh, in the kingdom. So they're not, and, and realize, I mean, the view of history, the Christian view of history is that it will be the church that endures. Mm. It will be the church that ultimately triumphs rather than a nation state. And so to surrender that to a partisan agenda, as he says, or a nation state is to, is to misunderstand mm. uh, Christ, Christianity. So, I, which I thought was really interesting. And I think that we have to uh, really give some thought to what do we believe about the world right. and that Christianity is not merely a privatized um, a message that saves your individual soul, but it is a broader uh, message than that. So That's interesting. And it, it just it came to mind as you were saying that it, it moves Christianity from the, the adjective to the noun. I am not just a, a Christian American. I'm a Christian that happens to be an American, and the the story is defined by my identity, and my identity is, is first as a Christian, and I don't just happen to be the flavor, uh, Christian-flavored American. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that's helpful. 
And, you know, his because of that, he would say the res- resurrection of Jesus is not merely a religious claim. The resurrection of Jesus is inherently a political claim mm. because it is a kingdom claim. Yep. Um, here, here. And so, he, you know, he, he cites, uh, for instance, he cites uh, Justin Martyr and some things that he said. And he said he was not executed because he was religious. He was executed because he held a competing interpretation of human history. And I think that we have to, to really think, what, what do we believe about where human history is going and how does that dovetail with, um, you know, the news that we read or uh, other things? So anyway, that's Proposition 2. Both of 1 and 2 are about history. The Proposition 3 is about uh, hope, and he says, Proposition 3 that he makes in this manifesto is, American hope is a bastard, which what, what he means by that and see, this is, yeah, this is why we have to be a little more careful. Um, that the biblical task entrusted to the Church of Jesus Christ has been transferred to the United States. That's, uh, that's what he means um, by that. So that it, history isn't just one damn meaningless thing after another. Um, and it's not the work of the United States of America either. And so the church is the agent and witness to the hope of the world, not America. And to transfer the hope that belongs to the church to America is to make that, uh, you know, is to fall into this problem, Mm -hmm. is to put the Christian hope somewhere else. Which is, uh, again, goes back to some of the things I've been learning as we've been doing this and and reading uh, the political uh, ideologies and illusions. the um, about liberalism, he says one of the fundamental phys- philosophical problems with liberalism, liberalism from a Christian perspective is this. Liberalism does not explicitly concern itself with the shared conception of the meaning of life, the purpose of life, or the end of history. Liberalism may, in fact, after all, concern itself with the meaning of life or end of history, but only by privatizing the question of what a good life entails. And see, I think one of the places that, you know, even the book that you referenced last week and the things that we're trying to to do in church when we are preaching the gospel is to define what the good life entails. Mm-hmm. What, is, what does it mean to be fully human? And when you have a competing view of what it means to be fully human with, uh, you know, what somebody might have if they were in the uh, the political realm to to be you know a Republican or to be a Democrat is to be the be- that's the best human life. Um, that those are competing views, and you are going to end up with conflict and the church not uh, really fitting in that well. So mm. uh, he said it this way too: uh, we're forced to realize that the the Tea Party uh, and the Green Party are in fact not trying to sort out the best way to be Christian but how to be the best partisan of liberalism so that it's really this individual uh, choice and an individual priority that is what we see along the political spectrum. Well, that's, I, I got to move a little faster probably. Uh, that's interesting though. Yeah. I'm remembering the uh, political visions and ideologies and mm-hmm. liberalism has a story, has a redemptive narrative Um but it doesn't tell you what the good life is. That's another way to say that, right. except to say that the individual decides what the good life is. 
mm-hmm. which is another way to say there is no capital T truth. There is no capital G good, right. um, capital B beautiful. Uh, and and you need you need that as an overarching theme or, or things break down. Which is very hard to be a Christian and ins- insist on uh, absolute truth mm-hmm. and be a liberal mm-hmm. and suggest that individuals create their own truth. Right. I mean, I mean, a pure liberal there. Right, right. And, you, you, you know, most Christians find themselves in both places. Right. And then I don't know how to put that together. Well, absolute truth wins. Okay, well, that's a competing worldview with your politics. That's a competing mm-hmm. worldview with, you know, most educational, in, you know, institutions. It's a, that, right. So what, we're, what, what is happening in this book, this scandalous witness book, is to suggest it's scandalous because— uh, Christianity presents a competing view mm-hmm. that is not on the political spectrum, mm-hmm. but is competing with, uh, among other things, liberalism. So uh, by that, I mean competing with the the exaltation of the individual. Right. So anyway, I do need to move faster. There's 15 propositions. I'm only in four here. Proposition four, Christianity is neither a prostitute nor a chaplain. And uh, this is this is his summary of it. The American myth has used Christianity, and Christianity has too often been willingly used, mm. has too often been a whore to use the provocative and crass language of the Hebrew prophets. Or at best, he says, Christianity has too often been a mere chaplain, blessing the imperialist exploits exploits of the American empire. Mm. And, uh, you know, we've talked about that before, that if... Uh, in some respect, you make Christianity in service of another thing. It's that other thing that's ultimate, and it'll, mm-hmm. that other thing becomes an idol, and right. that's what he's suggesting here. His fifth proposition is that the United States is not the hope of the world. And this is, uh, again, uh, talking about competing truth claims. Um, he says, he's talking about Woodrow Wilson, uh, more pointedly, following the war, Wilson repeatedly said America would save the world. He says, I've lived to see a day in which, after saturating myself most of my life in the history and traditions of America, I, I seem suddenly to see the culmination of American hope and history. All the orators seeing their dreams realized, if their spirits are looking on, all the men who spoke the noblest sentiments of America heartened to see the great sight of a, of a great nation responding to and acting upon those dreams and saying, at last... The world knows America as the savior of the world. That's Woodrow Wilson. Now, I mean, that's a, that's a big claim. And, and that's a president. And we're, I mean, you're after the, the First World War, and it's a, that was a, it was quite a time, shall we say. But what he's... Not a good time. But what he has claimed is a religious claim. Mm-hmm. And I think... I think we have to start recognizing when politicians are making religious claims. Mm. And that's, I think that's, that's what, a good warning, that's yeah. what this is really, this proposition is about. Um, well, and that's, that's, that smacks of a, of a Christian nationalism, but even more so it, it makes, and that's what the manifesto says. It, it makes the United States, the hope of the world. Uh, here's the Evangelion. Here's the gospel. The United States has showed up. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, that's a huge misalignment of, of truth and even what well, the point of a nation state is. And of Christian affection, right. Mm-hmm. 
He, he also says the harm is in failing to comprehend the new possibilities made possible in the Christian vision and witness. The hope of the world is not dependent on any geographically bounded nation state, not dependent on any king or prime minister or president, any Congress or Supreme Court. And again, that is not the message that you generally hear when you're talking about, you know, how should a Christian engage in politics? So that's Proposition 5. Proposition 6. The United States was not and is not and will not be a Christian nation. Maybe. Um, <laughs> how does he really feel about this, right? Um, proposition 7. So I'm just let that, I'm going to let that sit because we, we, we talked about that it. before. No, totally. I mean, um, and these other, really all of these others are filling that out. So right. I don't feel like, I feel like I'm going to try and hurry instead of uh, belabor that. But Proposition 7, which is surprising, how Christian values and the Bible corrupt Christianity. And so Go with on. it, yeah. And with <laughs> this, he talks about, um, again, using Christian values in the Bible in service of something else. And when you do that, it corrupts Christianity. Um, the, um, you know, most pointedly, he says, a loss of the overarching Christian narrative leads to a corruption of Christian witness. In other words, this history that we've been talking about and that kind of thing must be in play for the Christian witness to be, uh, to have integrity. Otherwise, we're, we're redacting or cutting parts out of our Christianity in order to fit them in another worldview, mm. which I think is really something that we have to think about. And so he, he suggests, you know, when you, um, in other words, he says, learn to run any public or political employment of the, you know, quotation, the Bible says, through our redaction filters. What is being ignored, left out, or not told? What is being redacted? And so when things are left out, even though you say the Bible says it, and you leave out the, the overarching Christian narrative, then you are um, essentially corrupting Christianity, which I think is, uh, I think that's certainly worth our um, consideration mm -hmm. and thought. Proposition eight, every empire falls. And um, he, 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 he summarizes it this way. Uh, he says, if A, we recognize that Jesus explicitly rejected the so-called satanic imperialist shape for his kingdom, and he did. If B, we recognize that the long history of the Christian church precedes the U.S. empire, and if C, we recognize that the Christian church shall extend well beyond the life cycle of the United States, for this is the very promise made to Peter by Jesus, then D, we become free to be both judge and critic and contributor and citizen, knowing that the existence of the U.S. empire is not our ultimate historic concern. And, um, I mean, I love the U.S. empire and have benefited enormously from living here, but ultimately I dare not confuse it with the church of Jesus Christ. I think that's his message. Mm. And even points out, he says, not your ultimate historical concern, right. but also you can be a contributor and citizen, which can make it an, a concern. It is a historical concern yeah. for sure, but yeah. not the ultimate one, right? Proposition nine, Christian partisanship is like a fist fight on the Titanic. And um, he's, he's just talking about the way that people 
uh, talk to one another or fight over things when they lose sight of the overarching uh, historical narrative of the of the gospel then they begin fighting over uh, things that don't matter so much like a fist fight might be on the titanic proposition 10 hostile forces have a role in the unfolding of history and um this is real interesting. He did quite a bit that uh, I'm not going to include here on, you know, how Romans 13 and 1 Peter and Revelation 13 fit in the uh, unfolding of history. Revelation 13, especially when you've got the beast, right? And mm. we're talking about hostile forces, mm-hmm. uh, hostile empirical forces for sure. And then he just... Uh, he, what he tries to do is say, from the New Testament perspective, the state and governing authorities serve the mission of the church, and the church is the primary character in God's mission to the world. Mm. And so if you're going to unfold history, you're going to unfold it with respect to the church. And I think that's something that we've, uh, in the West, probably have completely lost sight of, that, that history unfolds with respect to the church. Mm. That's the way the Bible presents it. And uh, we unfold history with respect to nation states. So we see it differently. And there are competing worldviews. There are competing ways of looking at the world again, which is very, very interesting. Proposition 11. Uh, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a politic. And um, he says, we no longer say Christianity is not political. When we say Christianity is not political, we are not only demonstrating that we are disciples of modern liberalism instead of disciples of Jesus, or we are only demonstrating we're disciples of modern liberalism. Mm. And he goes on again to talk about liberalism like we've done several times on this podcast, which again, uh, that's of all the things I've learned this past year, that's probably been the thing that has been most striking uh, to me. Um, One of the things I, I think that I would add to this or a place here that is really important goes back to what we think Jesus is doing or, or the, or the Lord is doing in the church. And he just mentions what, you know, baptism does. You're baptized into Christ. You're baptized into this new humanity. Uh, and if you're baptized into a new humanity, you have a common and new ultimate allegiance. And what that, what that means then is that God is doing something in the world through the church, independent of nation states, in fact, that must transcend nation states, because mm. that's what the Bible says about the, um, about the church. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm leaving way more out than I had even planned to say, but I feel like oh, I'm just going on and on. Pro- Proposition 12. And j- just back on that 11, okay. I was reminded when you said that, that that relegates religion to that, that private piece again. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it misapplies political, what that even means. But it, it says, okay, you have a box for your religion that goes over here, um, and your box for your, your politics that goes over here. And Christianity is, is such a big story that it, it encompasses all those things. Mm-hmm. But with, within modern liberalism, Christianity is a private thing that sits in this private box that can't have an overarching story that informs exactly, everything. yeah, exactly, and and I think that's that's some of the reason I thought it would be worth going through each one of these because 
you know, we do, even though we talk about it, we end up just sort of reverting and putting, like when we're done playing with it, we put Christianity back in that box Mm -hmm. and then we put it in the, Mm -hmm. you know, in the cupboard so that we can play with it next time. And that's not the way that Jesus, you know, came to do it, I don't think. Proposition 12, liberal political power is not the goal. He used a different word I can hardly pronounce, so that's okay, but... (laughs) Uh, I, I use the cuss words, but I, this one I can't <laughs> Excuses. It's French. He's not going to say I, I don't know how to pronounce this one. So, Excuses French. Yeah. Um, but liberal political power is not the goal. So he, he says, the primary task of Christian community is not to dominate the, poli- the political communities that do not accept basic Christian claims. Our task is not to dominate the debates between liberal liberals and conservative liberals to forcibly bring to bear some redacted form of Christian values on a system that knows not Christ. Mm. There's a lot going on in that mm-hmm. sentence, but that's what most of us tend to do when we interact with politics. So uh, I think that that's that probably, if it wasn't so hard to read, I'd read it again, but it might be worth just you know hitting the little backspace on your record, on your player and listening to that sentence again, because... Um, well, I'll say it this way. He, he goes on to say, this Jesus was not crucified because he was spiritual. Mm. He was crucified because he incarnated, in, boy, he incarnated a new way of being king and a new way of being human, a new way that terrifies even the most spiritual of kings and presidents and prime ministers to this day, which I think is is really something. And he, he incarnated a new way of being king and a new way of being human. And that's, again, as we read the Sermon on the Mount, I think that's what Jesus is doing. Mm-hmm. And we just, that's really, I'm just going to say, I've been a pastor for, you know, 30 years, and that's new to me. Mm. I mean, I'm really starting to get that in a way I didn't get it before. Mm. So Proposition 13. Exemplary political witness is the goal. So this probably goes to the book that yeah. Eric reported on last week, and uh, we we would love exemplary political witnesses for sure. Um, but it was interesting because a, a couple things he said, I had never really thought about some unintended consequences, you might say, of the Protestant Reformation were that it fragmented Christianity in into the rise of the nation state. And I hadn't really thought about the nation state as such not being, you know, that way before the Protestant Reformation. Mm. So there were some, there were certainly different ways of organizing um, the world, but that was sort of, that sort of came with the Protestant Reformation, which I thought was interesting. And he, he goes on to say, with Luther privatizing fundamental Christian witness to the realm of the spiritual and the personal, the nation state takes on the role of historical Messiah, takes on the role of the primary bearer of the meaning of history. And so the, the, the prospect even of, you know, just personal, um, my personal faith and my personal justification and that, that came with wonderful things, and you must be justified by faith in Christ, mm. uh, that came with the Protestant Reformation had some unintended consequences that I think are interesting. That too, the, I will add, that he points out Anabaptists who are not really, that's, they're not our, you know, on our branch of the family tree necessarily. Mm. 
They understood clearly, on the other hand, he says, that adult believer baptism is a significant socio-political act. It allows adults a voluntary choice to reject or accept Christian faith and practice, to allow individuals to choose against the nominal Christianity of Christendom was a threat to the very social fabric. In other words, why were they so upset with those Anabaptists? I mean, I never Mm. really asked that question before, where they would, I mean, they would burn them at the stake, they would drown them. I mean, it was bad. Why was it that bad? Because they understood that that adult baptism was a socio-political act that would destabilize the social fabric Mm. of the world as they knew it. And that... Which is why you have those religious wars before... um, for 1700s mm-hmm. uh, in Europe, and part of the reason Puritans even came over to America in the first place. Right. So anyway, I'd never really thought of, uh, well, I never thought of baptism as a socio-political act, but I never really thought about why did they mm. oppose the Anabaptists so strongly when they believe what I believe, right, about adult baptism. What's so big? What's the big deal about that? But well, and how interesting is that? It it should even now be a socio political act, exactly, because we assume religion is a personal thing, exactly. But in reality, if I am getting baptized, I am saying I belong to the king. I am affirming right. an alternate view the king of, of kings. history and the world yeah. and the king. Right. All other nation states, all other allegiances yeah. pale compared to the king of kings. Yeah. So, Proposition fourteen. Christianity is not countercultural. Go on. Oh, yes. Um, So he, again, takes the same kind of uh, approach that that you talked about in your book report, that, uh, you know, our divergent morality is not done as some patronizing chaplain, a sort of court prophet dispensing spirituality while America goes on its way, doing what it does without regard to the claims of the authority of Christ. Rather, he says, our divergent morality is one that requires us not to withdraw, but allow, but always be in a missional mode, engaging, celebrating, challenging, seeking the good of the city. So that it is an engagement with culture rather than uh, a withdrawal from, or rather than a patronizing chaplain approach to it. And in, in this, I think, is probably the thing that's of value. From some cultural practices, we maintain an insistent withdrawal. In some cultural practices, we wholeheartedly engage. Mm. Yet in other cultural practices, we will seek a redemptive transformation, engaging with care, celebrating some particulars, and critiquing yet others. That reminds me of the Tim Keller rubric. In Center Church, yep. Uh, which goes through a... He, he talks about the Luther uh, two kingdoms approach. He talks about mm-hmm. uh, Niebuhr with the uh, uh, Christ over culture, under culture, transforming culture, and basically synthesizes all the, there's the Calvin approach. There's all these mm-hmm. different approaches, uh, but basically says this. This is where Kel- Keller lands, right? Right. Yeah. There's basically uh, varying ways, depending on what the culture is doing, there are varying ways it needs to be engaged um, critiquing or not, accepting or not, reforming or not. Um, and I, yeah, that'd probably be a good podcast to go through, I would think. Yeah. We'll just through that rubric at some point. Yeah, uh, file that away. And then the, the last proposition is that Christian, Christian engagement must always be ad hoc. 
Uh, in other words, it, it's not going to be tied to a nation state. It's not going to be tied to a political party. And it's going to simply be ad hoc. You're going to take each thing as it comes and make decisions about it uh, there. Um, partly because of our view of history. So he, uh, I'll just try and give you a, s- a summary of what he's talking about here. Uh, he's talking about eschatological realism in which we are constantly attending to the fact that the kingdom of God has come, but not yet fully. And thus, A, all our best attempts at bearing witness to this present and coming kingdom are always prone to and always tend towards sin. And B, that all the best and varied social practices and political commitments are also struggling under the domination of sin and death. It allows us to let go the unrealistic idealism or utopianism that drives partisan visions. So what he, what he just said there is that seeing Christianity really uh, th- thoroughgoing Christianity from sin to consummation, uh, well, from creation to consummation, involving the redemption from sin, and all of that lets us uh, release the idealism or utopianism, utopianism that would make us partisan or certainly make us angrily partisan, shall Mm -hmm. we say. And he says, second, this approach then makes space for political realism, not in granting such political realism status as authoritative for ethics or policy or Christian life, but in its capacity to see things, to see power dynamics at play that we may not be able to see otherwise. Mm. And so his final couple statements are these. It will not be the hope of America. It will not be the hope of any nation state. It will only be the hope of Christ who breaks down all walls of hostility, making all things new. For captivity has, after all, been taken captive and death already undone. The fundamental political question of our day is not, cannot be, then a a partisan one. Mm. That's good. Yeah, and so that's uh, those are the fifteen <laughs> propositions. I say quick propositions, but I spent quite a long time on them. That uh, Lisey Camp uh, writes in his uh, book, "A Scandalous Witness," a little Christian or little political manifesto. And so um, I I found it very provocative and found it to express in other terms that I wouldn't have expressed. Mm. some of the things that we've tried to talk about on this podcast uh, throughout the, the past year. And so in that respect, very helpful. And um, I, I think that our readers would probably benefit from that too. So yeah, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And um, I, I hope I hope even just the podcast summary might be enough. Mm. So, we'll Perfect. Well, thank you for that book report. And thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us. If you find out we're doing helpful, a review obviously is helpful for us. If this is helpful for you, a review is helpful for us. Uh, share this with a friend. If you have questions, send them to comment at cityonahillpodcast.com. Those are always fun to read. And if you want to leave an audio version or a question, uh, you can go to speakpipe.com slash podcast and record something there. And we may use it on a future episode. So with that, we look forward to the next conversation. Mm-hmm.